you ever wonder how some of the greatest people today become who they are? Most everyone has experienced that turning point in their life. It's these moments that forever changed who they were into whom they've become. Today on The Moment with Chris Epting, you'll hear from these people and hopefully be inspired to find your own life-changing moment. Now, here is your host, Chris Epting. Thank you for joining me. And uh, I have a really special guest today. It's always... Uh, it's always a privilege, you know, when you're talking to somebody who's just part of your, your growing up, you know, someone whose voice and songwriting is so ubiquitous, going back to the late 70s, through the 80s, 90s, and on till today, uh, that it's always, you know, it's, it's fun to share stories and hear about their moments. And Christopher Cross is certainly one of those guys, when he first came onto the scene, I think the album, the initial album was released technically in 1979. And then at the 1981 Grammy Awards, which were, of course, um, taking stock of 19, records released the year before, um, Christopher Cross did the unprecedented, literally won five Grammys out of the gate and, and thus set, you know, set forth um, just remarkable singing, songwriting career. So, Christopher, are you there? I'm here, Chris. Nice to be with you. Thank you. I appreciate it, man. Listen, it's uh, it's. I don't know how we'll tackle everything in an hour, but we're going to do it. We've got a cool thing we're going to talk about near the back end of the show that's kind of a surprise. But up front, um, you know, Chris, you've had a lot of great moments in your life, obviously, and also a lot of important moments. But one of those moments that was probably not as... Uh, something that's positive happened this year. I mean, the year started off, or last year rather, started off, interestingly enough, where you had Billie Eilish who, who won, uh, I guess, four Grammys, right? And automatically there was the parallel with you and you put out a really gracious message sort of welcoming her to that Grand Slam club as it was, though she doesn't have a, an Academy Award like you do. And, and that was all well and good and you're preparing to tour. And then you went down and did a show in Mexico, I believe, and came back in the springtime and you announced on your social media that you had tested positive um, for COVID-19. And from there, things really kind of spun out of control and you were very open and, and I think very courageous about how you confronted what was going on and shared it so that people really could kind of go through this journey with you. First of all, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well, Chris, and I'm certainly what they call a long hauler. Not so much from, from COVID, which I did have. My girlfriend, Joy, and I had. It was very severe, very tough three weeks of uh, probably as sick as I've been. But from COVID, I contracted uh, an illness called Guillain-Barre syndrome. Some people just say GBS, which is a rare neurological disease. Uh, usually strikes like one in 100,000 people. And uh, I got that a few days after sort of getting well from COVID, if you would, and ended up in the ICU for 10 days, and it was very touch and go. And, and through that, um, I was paralyzed. I was in a wheelchair. Also, my hands were kind of paralyzed. I had some face paralysis. And it was a long road back through uh, physical therapy, and, and I got amazing care from my doctors and nurses and physical therapists. And I was able to, you know, uh, make some progress. And so I'm, I'm out of the wheelchair and off a walker, and I... I use a cane now sometimes, but short walks and stuff, I can I walk unaided. So I'm ambulatory and I'm, I'm doing all right. I don't know. My legs are still quite weak. I'm not really sure how much better I'll get in the long run, but I'm grateful to be where I am. Wow. And you've been playing guitar. Have you gotten back into music uh, to, to a degree that you can share? Well, I hadn't been for about six, seven months, mainly because I was just so very ill. But uh, And my hands had this, what's called neuropathy, this sort of paralysis uh, but that's kind of abated, and I am playing again. Uh, my fingertips are a little sensitive, but it does keep me from playing. So I've been doing a few sessions for people and, and working on 
some music again yeah, in the last, I'd say, few weeks. So that feels nice. Uh, I really wasn't really able, able physically to do it and frankly didn't have a lot of drive uh, th those early months because I was just trying to, uh, a lot of people when I was in ICU were writing concerned about my hands and I was writing it back and saying, listen, I just want to walk. I mean, yeah. I've had a great career. If I, if I don't play again, it won't be the end of the world for me, but uh, I do want to walk. And so that was much more of a concern to me than my hands. It was really something because I'm sure you never intended on becoming kind of one of the faces of what was going on, but because of your openness and, and, and your sharing and then CBS Sunday Morning did the really uh, you know, meaningful profile on you, it brought it to a lot of people. And lo and behold, you, you really became a voice for a lot of these things that have been uh, afflicting people, starting with COVID at least as kind of a springboard. What, what, what did that feel like to all of a sudden be, you know, to, to be addressing people, you know, from that viewpoint as opposed to just being a popular singer-songwriter? Well, you know, I felt it was important. I do have to say that I think Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson coming out as they did uh, sharing their experience, because I know Tom and Rita and I have so much respect for both of them. And the fact that they, at, at their height of, of uh, mm -hmm. celebrity, were you know, willing to come out and let people know really encouraged me. So I just felt it was very important to just try to, you know, remind people, uh, socially distance, wear, wear your masks, all the things that we know that uh, CDC tells us, because obviously the administration and certain people were, were you know, not encouraging that. So that was my big thing was not only can you get real sick, but you can, you know, be like I said, like a long hauler, get some something debilitating like I did, even if it's just, if it's COVID related where you could be, have breathing problems or uh, couldn't walk, have cognitive issues and things from the disease. So I was just really trying to, you know, let people know, hey, look, you know, I'm not Elvis, but you know, this happened to me, it can happen to you, you know? Yeah. And, and again, there, there is something really meaningful when people, someone, you know, who, who's well-known takes that on because all of a sudden now you have an opportunity to generate awareness that, that many other people wouldn't have the power to do. So, I mean, on that level, I think people owe you a world of thanks just because you were able to focus a lot of attention on it and remind people that this can happen and it's not, you know, it's not fake. It's not a lot of the things that, that, that the disease was being accused of. Um, and that it's very real. And I think that made it real for people that brought it home because there is something about someone like you that, that people feel like they get to know you right over the years. And I'm sure, you know, given the, the amount of, of airplay you still get today, that people feel a real kinship to you, right? I'm sure people, I know your fan base is very loyal and very loving and, and, you know, they, they've really embraced you over the decades and you're somebody that everybody kind of feels like they know. Yeah. Well, and the fans have been amazing. In fact, you know, the, the 40th anniversary tour that I was supposed to do last April we're trying to do this September. We'll see. But the fans have been so gracious to hold on to their tickets and, and follow mm -hmm. sort of the calendar of what happens, the, the roller coaster ride of what we're doing with these venues and the shows. And they've held on to their tickets in support of me and wanting to let me know that they're going to they're going to be there if we can play. So that was incredible. And it was really funny, quite humbling. Which you said, Chris, some friends of mine were saying that they people are really touched and, and kind of moved by me sharing my experience. And I was sort of humbled by that because, I mean, I, I didn't really think of it that way. I was truly just trying to, um, you know, you sometimes you'll see something on TV where they talk about a certain affliction or disease that's very rare. And it said, they say it strikes one in 100,000 people. And you're thinking to yourself, you know, gosh, I wonder who that is, you know? Well, it's, in this case, it was me. And, uh, and, you know, cause you just don't imagine yourself getting whatever they're talking about on television. But that was my message to people is look, I was one of those people who was just like, Hmm, you know, 
how sad that someone has to deal with that. Because uh, there are definitely more died of a very rare form of Parkinson's. And um, so, uh, yeah, I was just trying to let people know that, look, you know, you're, no one's immune and uh, you could, uh, this could happen to you. So um, I think that was really my message, you know. You mentioned 40th anniversary. A, it's sort of hard to believe it's been 40 years um, since the debut record, debut record came out. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Does it feel like 40 years to you? I mean, yeah, it does. I mean, you know, I've had such an amazing life and so much has happened. I mean, I've made 12 albums in that time and done other projects. And so, you know, I've, 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 uh, I've done a lot of work. And so I guess that's the, the ruler by which I, the calendar, which I kind of have perspective. So I suppose so. I mean, you know, no one, I'm almost 70, I'll be 70 in May. I don't think anybody my age kind of wants to admit that or can really accept that in your head because I feel, I mean, other than being sick and I do have some neurological problems and you know, I feel pretty good. So uh, I'm fortunate in my general health. It's just that this, this uh, thing that's happened, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty amazing. I think time is, uh, you know, uh, there's a song we have um, called November and the bridge of the song says time wills and time kills, you know, and I think whether, whoever you are, especially even if you're an NBA star, you know, they'll admit readily that, uh, and I know you're really into baseball mm-hmm. and sport in, in major sports, the biggest enemy they have is time. Yeah. You know, you can't do that stuff unless you're young. Fortunately with what I do and what you do, you know, we can. Yeah. Well, what's funny too, because you talk about 40th anniversary. I mean, many of us of course remember that album, but I think it also, what I like about the anniversary, and I'm, I'm glad to hear that the tour is going to go on um, when things get a little bit back to normal. I think it also, that album can act as a springboard into a lot of other music that people may have missed over the years. Because you're one of those guys who, you know, obviously people will tend to focus on big radio hits. But beyond that, you've got albums you did afterwards that are that are rich with the same kind of, you know, melodic, poignant, you know, really quality songwriting that people just tend to miss over time. You know, when things stop getting played on the radio, it doesn't mean artists aren't still creating really important work and, and work that sounds as good or better um, than, than people uh, relate to. You and I first got to know each other uh, over an album. How, when did, um, I'm trying to think of what year that came out, uh, Dr. Faith. Yeah, I'd have to scratch my head too, I guess 2010 or something. It goes back, yeah, I was going to say, it's, it's about a decade. And I remember thinking, wow, here's an album that sounds, you know, just as good. Uh, the songs were just as strong as the ones that first came out. And I, I think that's really impressive because for those of us that are fans of, you know, again, quality singer-songwriters that are part of your, you know, brethren, uh, you know, whether it's Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Randy Newman, people I know you like a lot, but that you all, you're all part of that same club, the who, people who consistently, regardless of what radio or MTV is doing, you still make great music that, that you're into making at that moment. So I would hope that a 40th anniversary would also help bring people into what else you've done. And on that note, now I don't know when you first started planning the box set that you recently released in terms of the COVID deadline. When, when, how long has the, the box set been in the works for you, Chris? Well, Chris, it's been about two years, believe it or not. Okay. If, if for those people who have one or who've seen it online, it's very, um, I'll say you know, with all of you, but it's because a lot of people worked on it. It's very beautiful set. And I think one of the things that I wanted to do with the box set was to really celebrate, as you said, that later work, particularly the work that I did with Rob Muir, my dear friend who I lost a few years ago to a hit and run accident in Los Angeles. Rob and I had begun working together, writing and 
those later albums mean as much to me as any, and especially the one you mentioned, Dr. Faith. Um, and so I, I was, I'm hoping that people who buy the box set, um, who only know the early work, will discover all this later music, uh, which I'm, like I said, equally as proud of as anything I've done. So that was really the, the idea of it. But I've been working on it about two years trying wow. to get it all put together. It's been a massive expense and people can take solace in the fact that I'm not going to make any money on, <laughs> on selling the thousand of them, but it's more about a legacy piece and just wanting people wanting to share this music. Cause like you say, a lot of fans know about the first couple albums and they're really kind of unaware of my later work. And so everything uh, these last years has been to try to draw attention to those records. What was it like for you? Whenever I think of an artist putting together a box set, you're really almost scrapbooking your life, sort of a sonic scrapbook. So what was it like for you to go in? And again, it's a beautiful package. It's By the way, it's available at ChristopherCross.com, right? Yes, it is. Thank you very much. It is. Yes. And it's only a thousand. So that's, that's really limited. And they're autographed. They're and they're signed and they're, yeah, it's a super special package. I mean, very limited, really curated. What was it like for you when you first made the decision to do it, to think, okay, now I've got to do it. Now I've got to go through everything. I've got to find some things. Maybe people haven't heard before. I've got to put together. Am I going to do vinyl? Am I going to do a book? I mean, it really, when people invest in these things, they are investments. What was the thought process like for you and where did you sort of end up in terms of what you came up with and what the final design looked like? Well, you know, the, the interesting thing is that medium's a big thing because I started this two years ago and CDs were still pretty relevant. And of course now, you know, they're, they're starting to fade um, into obscurity, but you know, the, the music has to be put out there on some medium. So what I decided to do, and my audience, I don't think is really a big vinyl audience. So what I decided to do was go ahead and the first step was to re digitally remaster everything. So I had Bernie Grunman, the great Bernie Grunman in LA, digitally remaster all the music from all the 12 albums, which that alone cost about 40 grand. And, uh, and then I decided, I, uh, a friend of mine, Randy Miller, suggested that I should do something with vinyl. So I decided to do a pink vinyl and I chose one song from each of those albums uh, uh, to put on there. So you do get a vinyl as sort of a collector's item, but I use CDs as the uh, medium to put it in because that still made the most sense. But I think it was a matter of the, the albums were a no-brainer and then this collective vinyl piece. And then I decided to do a bonus CD of as many tracks as I could fit, which ended up being about 15. And it was fun. They were just obscure things like the very first band I was in, Flash. I put one of the songs from that on there. Uh, it's a very eclectic sort of uh, record. And one of the things that I put on there is a song called Parade that I wrote very young. And it's funny, I was listening to it uh, I didn't have a copy of it. A friend of mine, Debbie Sherrill, sent it to me. And I got to tell you, this sounds a little cocky, but I, I, I listened to it. I thought, you know, this is pretty good. It's like, you know, <laughs> considering how old I was, I was, you know, working hard on my craft even then. And so uh, it was fun to to try to pick those little obscure gems to put on this, uh, this, this you know, bonus CD. Well, for those that haven't sort of studied your career early on, especially, I mean, the hard work ethic, I mean, that's there throughout. I think that's really obvious that you were very determined. Um, you put the time into craft. You certainly put the time into playing shows and really developing your skill as a singer, as a guitar player. I don't think people are even aware of what kind of guitar player you are. Really remarkable guitar player. And so, I, I mean, obviously, the, you put the work in before that first album ever, ever saw the light of day. Um, what's the feedback been like so far to the box set? It seems like fans have really picked up on, you know, appreciating what you've done for them with this. Well, they're, they're very complimentary. I mean, across the board, everyone thinks it's a beautiful package. A lot of people say it's the nicest one they've ever seen. It is expensive. The set costs $400 with shipping and everything. But mm -hmm. as I say to the fans, you know, um, <laughs> there's a lot in it. So trust me, nobody's getting rich, but 
Um, it's just, it's a quality product. I mean, the artwork by Gary Dorsey of Pixel Peak Studios and Pixel Peak Studios in Austin uh, did a, a brilliant job. Uh, and so it's, it's a very much of a collector's item that's something that people will have forever um, on their coffee table, wherever they decide to put it. But yeah, I, I think, you know, as I mentioned, uh, Rob Muir, um, when I, we would get sort of, I would get sort of blue about the fact that no one was really listening to the albums or hearing the albums like Walking Neville and those. I would ask Rob, you know, why are we, why do we, why do we keep doing this? And Rob would say, because it's about the work. It's what we do. And, and right. those, those words really ring to me still true because that's what I think is my legacy is the fact that, you know, in spite of this early massive success, I didn't devolve into drugs or some other distraction. I just kept working. No, exactly. And uh, you've also curated a lot of photos in there as well, right? Yeah. And it's funny, interesting. Someone did, you try to think of everything at some point or another, we don't have little descriptions of what the photos are. So you've got to kind of, where's Waldo. And at some point we'll probably put a little thing on the website, kind of showing what, I think most people can figure it out, but there, there are a lot of obscure photos of, of me with different people and it just, you know, a, a broad look at my career. So it's, it's, a, it's a fun journey when you open the first page and go through the whole thing. Beautiful cover as well. Stunning artwork. We're going to get back and talk a little bit more about it. Chris, we have a quick commercial break. I'm Chris Septing. This is the moment. My really special guest today is Christopher Cross, and we'll be back in just a minute. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June. Available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you become a member yet? Sign up now to become a member of Voice America. It's always free and easy. Plus, you get to take advantage of some great member benefits. Get unlimited access to millions of hours of on-demand content across all of our channels. Keep track of your favorite episodes, shows, and hosts in your own customizable library. Find out what shows you might be interested in based on your favorites. Plus, you get insider access with our newsletter. Membership gives you more. Sign up at voiceamerica.com and click register at the top right. listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you, and I'm back with my really special guest today, Christopher Cross. Christopher, we're talking about your new box set, which is available at ChristopherCross.com, and the cover is spectacular. And, of course, there's the Pink Flamingo, which for some reason has become your artistic icon since album number one. Why don't you first talk about how that happened and then describe the beautiful cover art of the new box set? Well, uh, you know, I was talking at the break that I wish I had more of a profound explanation for the Flamingo, but there isn't one. A, a drummer that I worked with early on in my career named Jimmy Newhouse was also a very talented artist, and he drew that watercolor image of the Flamingo in the Lagoon, but as, a, as an entire album cover without the green around it. And he handed it to me, and he said, this is, this is uh, what I think your music looks like. 
And we've hung it on the wall, sort of like, uh, you know, they talk about sometimes when women give birth, they have a focal point. And we've kind of hung it there like, you know, this is our, this is uh, the, the vision of our dream. And then later Warner Brothers, when it, we used it as a cover, they put it in the green and all that. But it, it didn't have any significance beyond Jimmy's vision that that, that was what my music sounded like. And uh, we didn't really have any other ideas. And, and we showed it to Warner's, they liked it. So we went with it. And then, of course, you know, it's an iconic record. So then they carried it through on all the covers and and I get, you know, I just got a flamingo snow globe in the mail. I mean, I get a million flamingo things. Uh, but, you know, it's it's kind of like Linda Ronstadt. Linda had a heart on her records. Every record had a little heart somewhere that was sort of her thing. So it's just more of like a logo, you know, uh, that's tied to the very beginning of the success. And then with the box set, I, it was my concept basically in the beginning uh, to have me riding flamingo because I'm from Texas and the whole cowboy thing. And I, I, I really am a big fan of this uh, Coen Brothers movie, The Buster Scruggs. And Wonderful. I wanted that kind of look. So I gave all that to uh, Gary Dorsey of Pixel Peach Studios in Austin. But I really expected it to end up looking like Family Guy or something, that kind of animation. And Gary just took it to a surreal level. I mean, the, the cover, uh, the, what he did with my idea is just nothing short of brilliant. And, and it, that carries through the entire record. I mean, all the pages, the artwork for the CDs, everything he did is just stunning. But it's a very tongue-in-cheek, kind of self-deprecating uh, treatment of the flamingo because like I said, I am from Texas. And I'm my thought there is I'm sort of saying so long, you know, kind of like I'm headed down the trail with my trusty flamingo. One woman actually said to me, what kind of horse is that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's really just a, a mascot, you know, something that has been part of that early success that we we uh, you know just continue to embrace, you know. Well, it's funny because I know you didn't intend to brand yourself with it, but it's been really effective. Like you say, it's one of the I mean, look. The pink flamingo is one of the most sort of charming, you know, albeit kitschy uh, icons in American culture. It's people something I think people genuinely like or feel good about when they see it. It evokes. It's very evocative, and uh, and so you know I think you got a lot of equity that came out of that. But it's uh, but it's really nice. And you know, thinking of that first album. Chris, I know that you explained to me once recently that part of the reason of the success outside of the really strong songs, obviously, and singing and playing was that you were fortunate enough to have some some really great talent join you and sort of add what they do to your record. And that programmers saw that and thought, wow, this kid in Texas, how did he get these people involved? Talk a little bit about a couple of the people that sort of made cameos on your first record and, and how that might have affected the perception of it once it was released. Right. Well, you know, we uh, we started uh, with the core of our Texas band, which had a, which was a, a great sound. You know that we uh, we started with, and then Michael and Marty produced the album and brought some some great things to it. Uh, and then just by by chance, really, uh, some things happened. Michael and Marty and the Doobies were actually recording next door, doing "Taken at the Streets" at, at the Amigo Studios in Studio A. We were in Studio E, and Marty knew McDonald from Steely Dan and kind of walked over and said, "Hey, I'm producing this kid from Texas. You should come check him out." I mean, say, kid, Michael and I are the same age, but um, <laughs> Michael came over and, and liked what he heard and offered to sing. And and uh, again, Marty's connections through Steely Dan gave me access to uh, asking Larry Carlton, the guitarist, to play on the record, which is a big dream of mine. Um, Don Henley from the Eagles was a friend of mine from Texas. He's a fellow Texan and it was really supportive during my search for a record deal and all that stuff. And once again, offered to sing and he brought along J.D. Souther. So <laughs> Nicolette Larson was on the label and Ted Templeman just, you know, Valerie Carter, everybody just seemed to just kind of fall into place. 
um, it was amazing because I didn't know any of these people. Well, I mean, I mean, I knew Don, but I uh, didn't know any of them. And they all seemed to be drawn, I mean, humbly to the music, which. Uh, well, I was going to say that I think that's what really makes it. They didn't come in there gratuitously. They did it because they liked what you were doing. I mean, they didn't know you. So it wasn't like they were looking to pay off favors or anything. They were reacting to the songs. Right. I think they were the songs uh, and, you know, the, the, the sound we were getting and uh, Chet Himes, the engineer, the sounds he got. Um, it was a very um, unique record all in all. Um, again, you know, Rob uh, on keys, Tommy Taylor on drums, Andy Salmon on bass. You know, we had a, a great kind of unique Texas section. And then you add all these people like Michael and Marty and playing on it. And, and we started to create a sound that people, I think, found pretty infectious and interesting. And they were, you know, willing to be part of it, considering I was nobody. I mean, they just, they basically signed on to, you know, playing on a newcomer's record, which you don't really hear that, you know, find that that often. Right. And that probably, obviously, when, when DJs back then are looking at the stacks and new records they're getting, they're looking at the back of years and that had to jump out at them. But again, until they play it, I mean, again, it was the songs that obviously got the attention. You found yourself going from sort of bar band status to almost immediately to touring with both Fleetwood Mac and alternating with Eagles tours that first summer, which had to be pretty heady as well. Yeah, I mean, it was completely out of body overwhelming. I mean, we had nine songs to do. And, and, and of course, as we progressed past that, you know, we were playing our own shows in 20,000 Seaters, we only had nine songs. So, and, you know, playing those shows with Fleetwood Eagles, stuff like that. And I, my first tour was actually opening for Bonnie Raid. I did about six weeks with Bonnie. It was very tough to hang on um, in that sort of uh, wind, you know. It was just, I was hanging on for dear life. I mean, I went from, like I said, playing bar bands to suddenly being thrust into this. And I, I clearly wasn't ready as a performer or really as a person, my marriage has fallen apart. Um, it was just a very difficult time for me to, I mean, wonderful, but, but very challenging to sort of, I don't think very few people have had that kind of meteoric success that way, having come from being just a regular musician, local musician to suddenly having that kind of notoriety. So it took me a lot of years to finally catch my breath and uh, be able to put my feet on the ground and figure out, what was ha what had happened. And I, I, I lament the fact that I wish I was the performer I am now, you know, on the Oscars and on those shows, because I've, I've seasoned that now. And I, I, I think I'm much better at it, but at the time I was just a deer in the headlights, you know? Right. Which would have been for anybody though. I think, I mean, in fairness to you, it's like you, it happened so quickly to find yourself in those performance settings. I mean, that's where, look, if it doesn't, it's like one of those things where they say, if it doesn't, it either kills you or makes you stronger. Right. And obviously made you stronger because you're, you're here, you're still here. You still put on amazing shows and, and you learn from it. I mean, I'm sure there are people that might've suffered under the weight to the point where it would have crushed them and crushed a career as well. Right. Yeah, I mean, the Eagles, it's funny, Don and Glenn used to always refer to me as the new kid in town. And Bill Simzik, who was their producer, used to give them a hard time. But I said, don't call him that. And Don and Glenn would laugh and say, you know, because uh, it was sort of, you know, it was interestingly, you know, profound in a way, because, you know, there's it's such a great song that they wrote. And it, it you know, it wasn't completely untrue. Um, and uh, so there you go. I mean, you know, it was you almost had to know it was going to be short lived, but uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world. I mean, you know, some people ask me, how does it feel? You know, you have early success and it doesn't, make, doesn't sustain. Uh, I'll take it. I mean, you know, I, I have uh, it established my name in the world uh, and enough where people knew it and I could continue doing my work. I could continue supporting my family and playing. Um, I've got some very nice acknowledgements for it. And so, you know, 
it's well, just it, as my son Rain likes to say, it's all good. <laughs> well, I look at it like you 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 afforded yourself, you know, the opportunity to do what you wanted artistically. I mean, I think that's a win. You know what I mean? Um, it, it, we can't just measure it all on commercial success because you make the music that you want to make and you've always, you know, you've never kowtowed to different trends and things. You, you write what you're feeling at that moment. And I think that to me, that's always going to be the true mark of a successful artistic career. And you, you've certainly done that. And the other thing interesting too, when you mentioned Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles, when you're opening at that point, they're, you know, they're like the, the two biggest bands on the planet at that point. They're, they're peaking at that point. Right. And you're, so you're put out there, you know, in front of these are arena and stadium style shows. This is no small feat that you're, you know, automatically thrust into. I mean, that alone had to be, you know, a head spinning experience. Oh yeah. I mean, the first Eagles date I played was at the, uh, Superdome in New Orleans, it was 70,000 people, you know, it was just, I you know what I was thinking, but uh, I think that, uh, you know, um, I would have loved to have gotten out of it, but I think uh, Don Henley, you know, Don was, thought it was a great space for me to be, to promote the record and to have my face out there where I'd let them listen to the charts. And, uh, and so in spite of my fear, you know, I, I was on those shows, but yeah, it was very, very heady. Uh, as I said, you know, uh, through I think through Don, but I don't know, Stevie Nicks found out about the band and we got an invitation. And so I don't know. It was uh, it was fantastic because again, in terms of exposure, starting with Bonnie and these other tours, I was thrust into a, a massive exposure, which really su- helped support the record. And so again, with having Mike McDonald and all these people on the record, then suddenly be touring with these huge acts. I mean, it was a kind of a wonderful, perfect storm, and uh, it, it established me. And so as I say, I'm. I feel very blessed uh, to uh, have had that kind of, you know, introduction to the world. So it's, uh, you know, it was, it was, like I said, it was overwhelming, but I, you know, in a lot of ways wouldn't change a thing. I mean, how can you sort of not wish for, uh, for that? I think you and I uh, have talked a little bit about that, that, you know, it's, it's, it's something that not a lot of people have experienced and uh no and, and nor have they experienced you know i mean people have won grammys but they haven't won five their first time out they haven't won an oscar i mean you had a bunch of these things happen to you but but again these were things that were based on the music and you know it was the, that's what i i think is important about all these things is you're earning these things by being a strong singer songwriter which is really all you've ever really tried to be right i mean you didn't set out i know you have a, a degree of ambition in you but it's it's always been about writing for you i mean i don't know if people People are aware, even the bands you played in, in your youth, you know, late 60s, early 70s, you had a lot of great musical experiences even before you became famous. Yes, I was fortunate to uh, work with a promoter uh, in San Antonio, Joe Miller, who who kind of managed me at the time or helped me get going. And he gave me an opportunity to play on some big shows and stuff. And you're right. I mean, I think the thing about my career, Chris, more anything is, is, the, the albums I've made, they've been honest, you know, it's like, that's who I was at the time. Like another page, my second album, it was kind of a ballad heavy record uh, because, but you know, that's who I was at the moment. Those are the songs I wrote. So whether it was the, the, the right follow-up eclectic to an eclectic album, like my first record, I don't know, but you know, it's, it couldn't be helped because it was, it was what I had to say at the time. So was every turn of the world, the third record back on my mind, all these albums reflected, you know, who I was and where I was at the time. So, you know, there's, it's not something you really control, you know, unless you're just, unless it's, you know, some sort of planned, uh, you know, uh, uh, devious thing, you know. 
Right. And, and I think that's where the box set comes in is a really important vehicle as well, because now people can literally sit and they can chart the arc of everything you've done, wh- where you were at in that moment. I mean, obviously, there's some familiarity they'll have with the earlier stuff. But I think the fact that you can kind of lead them into, you know, deeper cuts and, and albums that progress with Rob over the years, they're going to get a really complete sense of who you are as an artist. And that that doesn't always, you know, if you don't do a box set, it's going to be harder for people people to ever get that full sort of dimensional sense of everything you've done. Right. Right. And, you know, I had my heroes, you know, like Joni and people like that, who Joan, who particularly when she did his era and turned that corner, you know, and never looked back in terms of the great wide open as Tom Petty says, you know, with, with her work and, and how she started with Jaco and all that stuff. I followed her lead the whole way, you know, both is just, you know, she blazed that trail with expanding your horizons, working with, more sophisticated musicians and trying to grow your craft. In fact, with every turn of the world, you know, I, I did some lyric writing with John Bettis and Will, the great Will Jennings. And then with Back of My Mind, I started reconnected with Rob and we started to co-write songs together, which continued until his death. Because I knew that I wanted the quality of my work to improve. And um, I had moments where I've written some things on my own that were, you know, I say complete thoughts, but I felt there was, there could be some weaknesses at times, especially lyrically. And so, as time went on, um, those collaborations, particularly with Rob, really, I feel, kept the quality of the music where I wanted it to be. And I think I was telling you at some point, I'm not really sure if it was John Oates or who I read it from here, Daryl or somebody, but they were talking about filling albums with cereal. You know, you get a hit and then you just mm-hmm. fill it up with whatever. And, and the, the, the Hall & Oates in particular didn't really want to do that. You know, they just, they, and so I think that's what we tried to do is make sure that we, all the songs were as quality as we could offer at the time, you know. Exactly. And I think, yeah, I mean, D- Daryl and, and John definitely always felt that. And I think, I think still do. I mean, it's not about, they'll be the first to tell you, they never sat down to write a quote hit record. They wouldn't know how to do that. They just wrote about what they were feeling at that moment. And, uh, and their other thing that I think is par- parallel with you is this idea of, of growth and working with other musicians and never sort of, you know, that it's, it's okay to expand your musical horizons by picking session players and other players that are, that are right for that job, right? Right for the music you're writing at that moment and not necessarily just locking onto one group and saying, this is it. Well, that I learned from, yeah, you're absolutely right. That I kind of took that lead from Steely Dan, you know, Donald Walter, had an original group that they worked with at Camp by a Thrill, but you know, shortly after they started to expand into the studio world, as as Daryl and John have. And so I think, you know, I kind of again the, the Steely Dan model. I think all my records have been an attempt to, uh, you know, make great sounding records production wise in the style of Steely Dan. I'm not saying the songwriting is that good, but I'm saying that you know, and of course Michael Lombardi and my first producer who produced the first four albums was a perfect choice for that because he played piano on all the Steely Dan stuff. And knew that music well and actually he's been driving pretty crazy by constantly comparing what we were doing to Steely Dan. And it kind of made him crazy because he was like, look, you know, that's fine, but we're making our record, you know. And uh, but, you know, it's not a bad watermark to choose, you know. No, and you do have artists. You've mentioned Joni Mitchell, Steely Dan. There are certain artists. I know Randy Newman. I know the Beach Boys. There are artists throughout your career you've, you've derived inspiration from, right? And you probably still do today to some degree. Yeah, of course. I mean, I was Joan is my probably my top influence, but Randy Newman certainly is huge. Tom Waits, Brian Wilson as a writer, Carl Wilson, his brother, was my biggest vocal influence. So yeah, I've had a lot of artists who uh, Todd Rundgren as someone who I I you know explored early on in Todd's career, particularly the ballad, and followed his career, and then subsequently I've gotten to work with Todd and know him, and and so there were a lot of artists, quite a diverse group who who affected me. But I would say you know 
and of course, Lennon McCarty goes without saying. So, you know, there was a handful of people who were big, big influences and, and who I tried to um, emulate, but it probably of all of them, you know, harmonically and lyrically be Joni, you know? Yeah. And, you, you know, you mentioned Todd, you've done some fun touring with him. You've had actually, and we can talk about it in the next segment, but you've had opportunities to actually work with a lot of these people you mentioned and uh, great collaborative experiences that I'm sure are sort of pinch me moments for you. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> you look back. There, there are a lot of them and, and starting from the very beginning, I think, uh, you know, the second record, uh, the first record, of course, but then, then after the first record, having some cachet and some, name value, you know, being able to just call people up. I remember I wanted our Garfunkel to sing on Talking to My Sleep on another page. And, you know, Lenny Warnerker with Warner Brothers, president of Van Ar just said, well, call him up. And I'm like, you can't be serious. And, you know, it's like, <laughs> really? And I called Carl Wilson, you know, from the Beach Boys who sang on that record. So they were very much pinch me moments. Yeah. Well, and again, I think it's a point too, where you had to accept at a certain point. You were Christopher Cross. I mean, again, I'm sure they were just as happy to get that phone call from you because of, of what you had done and what you continue to do. So I think it works both ways. Chris, we're going to take another quick break here. And when we come back, we have a, something uh, to un- unveil for people that I'm super excited about. And I think you are as well. So I invite everyone to stay tuned. I'm Chris Septing. This is the moment. My really special guest today is the one and only Christopher Cross. We'll be right back. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. Chris Epting will be releasing the third edition of his best-selling baseball travel Bible, Roadside Baseball, in June 2019. Academy Award-nominated director Ken Burns said about Roadside Baseball, What a wonderful book. All the stations of the cross of our national pastime are here, big and small, telling and frivolous. I can imagine this book in the glove compartment of every true fan's car. A handy reference to this beloved game, no matter where in the country you are. The new edition features hundreds of new places to discover, more rare photos, stories, and trivia. It's everything you need to plan the baseball road trip of your dreams. Roadside Baseball, coming this June, available for pre-order right now on Amazon.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. Plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. You are listening to The Moment with Chris Epting. If you have a question or comment about our show, please send an email to Chris at chrisepting.com. That's chris at chrisepting.com. Now, back to The Moment. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I'm Chris Epting. My guest today is Christopher Cross. Christopher, we've been having this great conversation, but there's a piece of information, a bit of news that I think is really special, and I'm, I'm really happy to unveil right now. Um, we can do it together. I mean, you and I have known each other about 10 years or so, and I don't know if it was part of what, I mean, I know this has been on your mind for a while. I don't know if what you were dealing with um, with the whole COVID thing sort of pushed it to the forefront to really, sometimes when you're faced with something that serious, it inspires you to kind of go the extra level in terms of documenting your story. But you and I started talking a number of months ago about you being at that point now where you are ready 
to finally write your memoir, right? Yeah, I think, you know, you're right. The, the, the COVID experience this year certainly has pushed me in that direction. I'm also turning 70 in May, deciding that, you know, you never know what tomorrow may bring, as Traffic said. And so uh, decided to do the box set as a legacy piece and also decided to, to write a memoir. And I, I, you know, of course, you know, our friends and uh, I knew you were a writer and had been aware of the work you've done. And so I thought it would be nice to have someone who had a lot of kinship with the music. And so, yeah, I gave you a call and we started down this journey. It's been a lot of fun. We've been doing our Zoom calls, uh, just trying to track uh, track the story. And so it is very exciting. And I'm, I'm thrilled to be able to announce it with you. You know, we don't have a direct timetable, but we've been making well, a lot of progress. It's going to be sooner than later. I have to tell you, I am really excited about this. For those that don't know, I mean, some of you know that Christopher is an exceptional storyteller. And we've spent the last couple of months building. The way it works is you build a, a publishing proposal. And we've got that pretty much all together now. And we'll be talking to publishers and editors uh, soon, and then the book will come out. But I think I think it's really exciting for you. I mean, again, the box set is sort of the first piece of it. But now to collaborate on your memoir, you're going to be able for the first time to really make sense of all of these stories in your career. And I mean, my jaw has been on the floor numerous times throughout our conversations, um, whether you're talking about Paul McCartney or Jimi Hendrix or Led Zeppelin. And I don't think people have any idea um, just about what you've been through or the things you've experienced and, you know, what your journey, I mean, again, they know a lot of the hit records and they know a lot of those things that have been in the public eye, but you've got a lot of things you haven't spoken about, whether we're talking about Frank Zappa and, and it's really an eclectic collection of stories that, that paint this, um, this amazing picture, including what you went through this year. And I think the fact that we're going to actually use your recent experiences to help frame the story is important as well. People are going to get a really complete picture of what your life has been like. Yeah, I mean, I think what happened with me, uh, you know, being in the ICU for 10 days, uh, you know, the doctors, pulmonologists letting me know that it's possible that I could end up on a ventilator, that sort of thing. And may not survive, you start to say, hey, wait, but I had a few more things to say. And again, not that I'm Elvis, but, you know, I think I've had an interesting career. And people, my friends do tell me sometimes, guy, you, should, you, you know, you wrote a book because you, you, um, you got all these stories. And, and, and um, I'm so pleased to be doing it with you. And I think one of the things that we've discovered is you can go into this stuff in so much more detail. You know, it's sort of like some of the things you mentioned, like the Led Zeppelin thing. You know, you, you can tell that story with more detail because it sort of requires that. And I think, you know, sometimes with a documentary or interviews, you know, you just don't have enough time to really go into the, the background and the minutia of, of the story. And that's really what makes it, it, I think, fun for the reader. Exactly. And the other part too, with your life, I think what readers, are gonna, readers will discover when the book is done is there's going to be a lot of little books within the book. I mean, I think your life pre-fame um, almost could warrant its own memoir because you have this unbelievable catalog of experiences working as sort of an assistant slash roadie slash you know, helper backstage where you're working with the likes of Ginger Baker, Jimmy Page, the original Fleetwood Mac. I mean, all of these bands, Deep Purple, uh, you know, I mentioned Zeppelin. And you've got these experiences that are very kind of almost famous-ish. And they're very entertaining and very charming. And we get a real picture of you of how you're cutting your teeth um, as an observer. You described, you know, um, I guess it was when Blind Faith was playing down in Texas. Yeah, with uh, Blind Faith, that short-lived, amazing supergroup with there. Yeah, and, and there was one, just one little anecdote you kind of threw out there about you, you're a budding guitar player, and, and you noticed Clapton in the arena by himself, right? 
Yeah, I was, you know, I had access uh, because of uh, working with Joe, just running errands and doing whatever I had to do and, you know, learning about the business. And uh, so it wasn't, it wasn't like it was now where the security is so tight. It was more loose than Zeppelin's first tour, but I, uh, when I worked with them, but with, with Blind Faith, um, I just noticed Eric had walked out on stage with a coil cord and he had his two Marshall Plexis and his 335 and guitar. And he just walked out by himself and plugged in and started just playing on stage in this arena. And I just went and sat on a case next to him and sort of watched him sort of play for 30 minutes. And it was life changing. I mean, uh, it was, you know, insane just listening to Eric play by himself, you know, in this, with that sound in the arena as a guitar player, it was, uh, it was divine, you know, so experience. So yeah, those are just, you know, one of the many things that happened to me that made a huge impression on me. Um, and again, from not so much from the fame standpoint, but the musician's standpoint, you know, right. to get to see a, 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 a juryman, someone of that caliber, like Eric, just play really unaware I was there, um, you know, just blowing, just, you know, riffing and just doing his thing, being clapped and being God. Um, you know, it was, uh, like I said, it's kind of life changing and it gives you sort of this, you know, feeling in the bottom of your gut, like I want to, I want to aspire to be something great. You know, well, I love the fact there was a little tail end piece to that story where he's coming off and you ask him for his guitar pick, right? Yeah, I ask him. Well, you know, I don't know what, you know, you don't know what to say to people like that, because like I said, you know, there was that thing clapped in his God and he was very lovely. And I've met him since then, uh, you know, but uh, with Steve Winwood. But yeah, I just I didn't know what to say. And I was just and so on. So I asked him if I had his pick and he, he was very gracious and said, sure, you know, but. And I asked him something about what kind of strings he used, some dumb question that, you know, later it's kind of like the Chris Farley thing where you just kind of kick yourself. <laughs> but, um, you know, who's going to know what to say to Eric Clapton in that situation? But, and of course, Eric would never remember. But um, for me, like I said, it was, it was a life moment. So there, there are lots of those that I was blessed to be able to have before my own success. And I think it gave me a view into the artistic side of things more than the celebrity, because as I, as I say, all these early experiences, there wasn't all the security and a lot of these English bands, per se, it was their first tour. And it was just easier to move about and sort of be amongst them. Uh, you know, when Zeppelin, when I was around them, I mean, compared to their later career, I wouldn't have gotten within a mile of them. Well, and, and for people that don't know, with Zeppelin, your band was actually opening a series of, of shows for Zeppelin. I think it's their second, first or second American tour, right? So you're not just hanging out, helping out. You guys are actually opening the shows. Yeah, well, we were playing for 30 minutes, and Plant and Page were completely unaware of our existence until we told them. But still, you know, they were both really lovely and they were accessible. I mean, again, you know, they're such huge stars now, but, you know, later on, you wouldn't have got within a mile of them. But, uh, you know, we just were fortunate enough just to, it was casual, you know, it wasn't like it is now. So anyway, there's all these things that I, I wanted to kind of share with you uh, with, with the, the readers and the fans in the book. And I, I'm really excited about this opportunity because you and I have a chance to sort of, again, delve into the minutia and the backstory of a lot of this stuff. And uh, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Well, there's a, there's a lot of rock and roll history in it. I love the fact that Clapton's giving you his pick, unaware of the fact that 10 years from that moment, he's going to be very aware of who you are, you know? And I think that's what's kind of fun is that you actually have a chance, you will in your book, where without giving much away, 
there are certain artists that you were um, sort of tending to, you know, as an assistant, but then years later, you're actually either touring with them or recording with them. Some remember, some don't, but you have these great connect the dot moments where you're able to remind them, Hey, 10, 15 years ago, we were to get, we, you know, we've met already. And I think those are the moments that are really fun. There's some stuff with Paul McCartney, um, I know you as a big Beatle fan, your McCartney stories are just are just incredible and, and continue to this day. I mean, you you managed to actually forge relationships with a lot of these folks. They respect you as you respect them, and, and thus these friendships develop. And again, I'm not sure people are, are familiar with that side of your life. You've been very modest about it, I think. And a book is a chance to really lay claim to those stories and and unpack them for fans so they really get a true sense of what you're about. Yeah, I mean, you know, Paul is somebody I would, like so many of the people I know in the business, he's an acquaintance, you know, it's not like I don't talk to him every day, but he's, I've had occasions to, to be with him and he's, he's an amazingly, wonderfully affable person and for, you know, being a Beatle. Um, <laughs> but, you know, that story in itself, you know, we, we could, we'll talk in the, about the book, but, you know, it's amazing to have been around McCartney a few times and, 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 and all that. I mean, it's, it's still something that one of those major pinch me moments but the most interesting thing about that backstory is the fact that I met Paul through Michael Jackson. So yeah. there you go. So that's what we can, that's what people look forward to in the book is how the heck did that happen? What's the, what's the segue there? So that's, what's I think so exciting about the book is that we're going to be able to, you know, be able to, you know, tell the whole story, you know, uh, of, of all this stuff that's happened to me in this wonderful life I've had, you know, you know, it's funny, it's much rock and roll and music and even a lot of the Hollywood stuff too, given the fact that you worked, you know, obviously with Burt Bacharach, Carol Bear Sager and Dudley Moore and everything. You've got things really on earlier in your life through your dad, who was a pediatrician, right? And yeah, army, army pediatrician, my mother was an army nurse, right. But, but not just an army pediatrician. I mean, he had, a, he had a pretty important client, right? Yeah, he... Uh, well, I think I know who you're referring to. Oh, yeah, of course, you're my dad. My dad was uh, Dwight Eisenhower's grandkids' pediatrician, David and Julie. So, uh, yeah, we were lived in D.C., and that was pretty cool. Uh, it's so funny thinking about what's happened of late in our, our world and our government, considering when, that back then, D.C. was just so fluid and easy to be around, and you could go anywhere. And, of course, today, uh, so excited by the inauguration uh, of Joe Biden and Kamal Harris. But, you know, the way it's the way it's you know, surrounded by troops and all that. It's just a very poignant moment for me because I used to ride my bike up to the White House, you know, when I was a kid. See, but yeah, so right was, there. This is what I love about your story, though. It's not just about music. It's about this kid, you, who finds yourself, you know, in all of these, I mean, from a really early age, really interesting moments with very iconic people. You actually met Eisenhower. We'll save that story for the book, but it's a really funny story. And from there, it just sort of sets you off on this path of these, uh, these moments and these brushes with people that were, were it all kind of circles back and you make a lot sense of it later when you become very well-known and very established and are, again, able to work with a lot of these people. And I think that's what makes your story very unique is the fact that you did have this these youthful experiences where you were in the thick of, of rock and roll royalty, left and right. I mean, for years you were, you were doing that and then lo and behold, you know, you become this entity that the world knows as Christopher Cross. And you know, again, I think that's really something very poignant about about your story is how much time you put in and these really wonderful moments you had. I love 
just how you describe seeing Jimi Hendrix. Can you talk about that briefly? Because that was just something, you know, people forget, I think, the power of Hendrix and what a game changer he was. Briefly describe that time. You, just as a fan in the crowd, what seeing him was like, Chris. Well, it's funny you mentioned uh, President Eisenhower. You know, I, met, I, I did get to meet him briefly, and actually I asked him for his pick, and he gave it to me, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, well, I would see Hendrix three times, but the first time was in San Antonio at the San Antonio Auditorium, and it was an older theater with a large, very heavy theatrical curtain that, that was closed. And we had good seats, seventh row or something. And um, uh, Jimmy, uh, you know, they come out behind the stage, and you can hear activity. And uh, Jimmy plugged in his guitar and it just made this amazingly crackling sound like, you know, a, a cannon going off because uh, it was obviously an open line and he just plugged in his guitar. And then Jimmy sort of hit a low fifth on his guitar, sort of like an E and B, just checking his amp. And the, the entire curtain just moved. It just waved. And we looked at each other like, oh, because, you know, before that time, bands had little Vox amps and stuff. I mean, they, you know, it just wasn't like this. And we looked at each other and went, oh my God. It was kind of like there was a velociraptor behind the thing. And uh, he, you know, they, they started the show, they opened the curtain and he, was, he started Foxy Lady. And it was just, you know, I mean, to say your mind was blown is no, uh, uh, um, you know, exaggeration. I mean, he, Jimmy was in a green suit with a giant hat with a feather and just took us to another place. I mean, I'd never seen or heard anything like that in my entire life. And, uh, you know, I mean, Hendrix's playing is something you aspire to and learn from, but I mean, as a performer, I mean, you know, I've never even, you know, taken the gum off his shoe. I mean, he, he was a rock star, that guy. And so it was a moment, you know, clearly where um, we were ushered into a whole new uh, era of musical experimentation for sure. Yeah. It was well, well, kind I mean, of terrifying. That's but that's but a tiny taste of what people, Chris, will experience in, in your book that we're writing now. And I'm really excited about this. I mean, to come on the heels of your incredible new box set, which is available at ChristopherCross.com and limited to just 1,000. You don't want to wait on it. They're all personally hand-signed by Chris. They're really special packages. And then soon, we'll keep everybody posted as to um, the status, but your memoir will, will be out soon. I'm, I'm really thrilled to be working with you on this, Chris. Thank you for your uh, your trust on this. I'm, I'm I'm sure we're going to do something really special. Yeah, and people can find out about that at chrisepting.com, chrisfromcross.com, because like I said, we'll be posting some stuff on. Oh, yeah. I think let's make this fun for people. I I know you're very good about sharing things. So we're going to, we'll keep people in in the loop on how we're doing this, but it is a special announcement. I am super proud, super thrilled, and uh, I can't wait to see how this book turns out, but I know it's going to be great, my friend. So thank you for that and uh, for taking this hour with me. It went by too quickly, but I know we'll be doing it a couple of times more as we get closer to book release. Yeah, I look forward to it. Thanks, Chris. Christopher Cross has been my guest. I'm Chris Epting. Go to ChristopherCross.com and check out his uh, remarkable new box set. And thank you for listening to The Moment once again, and I will see you back here next week. Thank you for taking a moment out of your busy week to join us for The Moment. Be sure to join Chris Epting for another edition every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time and 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll see you here next week.